0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. That's where we're going to launch from today. Today. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, I'll just catch you up as quickly as I possibly can. We're in a series through the month of August uh, called Vision, Mission, and Values, and so we have covered, uh, week one, we covered our vision, and when we say that, we mean the goal. What are we trying to accomplish as a church? And for us, that's to see as many people as possible, meet, worship, love, and joyfully serve Jesus Christ. So that's our vision here. It's all about Jesus. Week two, we covered our mission and the way we conceptualize mission is that's the way we're going to accomplish the goal. So how do we how do, we do that? Well, our mission is to love God, love people, and make disciples. And so we took uh, a good bit of time the last couple of weeks walking through those <clears throat> two things, vision and mission, and the, now we're at values. And so we're going to work through today the six core values that we have here uh, at Love City Church. And, w- you know, when you think about what our core values. Again, different people can mean different things. For us, our core values, what they do is they give some further detail uh, to what it looks like to live out our mission as we seek to accomplish our vision. Okay, so this is just kind of getting, it it broadens it out and, and opens up some detail of what we mean when we're talking about people meeting Jesus and what it looks like for us to love God, love people, and make disciples. These are These core values are guiding principles for us. These are grids with which we run kind of all that we do and say as a church, our ministry philosophy, where we're going to exert energy and resources. These things help guide us, and they come from the scriptures, which is where the guiding principles for any Christian church should come. Amen. Amen. Yes, the scriptures. (laughs) We like those. Amen. Okay, so uh, I I asked you to go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. And we're going to uh, read just a few verses here, starting in verse 1, okay? Here we go. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Paul then begins to pivot into a bit of an apologetic for the the gospel that he just gave. And so as we're looking at our core values, the first is that we are gospel-centered in everything. That we are gospel-centered. The, the gospel is the center of what we are seeking to accomplish. And, and so <clears throat> the rest of these core values, and I'll, I'll try to connect these dots as we go, uh, they flow from this first one. Okay? And, and you may be wondering, okay, well, is that right? Why, why is everything centered on the gospel? And I, and I can say this with, with zero concern of it being hyperbolic in any way, we have no reason as a Christian church to exist or any power to operate in any of these other core values without the gospel. The gospel is the center of what we're doing. Uh, It's what we're about. Okay, so I also just want to highlight for you something in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance. And then Paul goes on to explain the details of the gospel. So Paul, the apostle, thought this was of first importance. And so I think we should see it as of first importance. That may seem elementary. However, it's, it's not maybe as obvious as it could seem. And then walking it out and living in light of it is even more challenging. We need the Lord's help for that. Okay, so <clears throat> let's... Just take a moment. If we're saying that the gospel is of first importance, if we as a church are seeking to be centered in the gospel, and some of that comes out of—and I don't have time—normally in trying to lay out a good case for this idea, I would go. I would start in Genesis and go all the way to Revelation, and and try to show you why the whole Bible is really the Bible is centered on the gospel. That from Genesis to Revelation, it is pointing us to the good news about Jesus, okay? But we got six things to to work through today, so I'm not going to do a survey of the entire Bible in establishing this point. Um, I have many other times. But the other thing, too, I, I meant to say this. I'm going to just, you know, touch the base of each one of these core values today. We did a whole sermon series several years ago called Roots, and it was uh, every week was a core value. So if you want a more thorough dealing with any of these ideas, you can go back into the sermon archive and uh, get that. Okay. So made, I'm glad I remembered to say that. Thank you for reminding me. You guys are doing great this morning. Um, so <clears throat> if we're going to say we're gospel centered, well, by golly, we better take a moment and say, what is the gospel? Make sure we're all clear on what we're talking about here. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion. I don't care if you remember that. I do care that you remember what it means. It simply means good news. The gospel is the good news. Our kids, when they were little itty-bitty, man, and we started trying to teach them about Jesus, that was one of the first things we'd hit them with. What's the gospel? It's the good news. And so that's, that's kind of a summary of what it is. Okay, the good news about what? Well, Paul broke it down for us. When Paul gave us the gospel, which is of first importance, what did he say? Okay, let's look at it one more time, starting in verse 3. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Okay. So the good news of the gospel is that God sent Christ to pay the substitutionary price for our sins, Okay. That he was buried and then rose from the grave conquering sin and death. That's the good news. Now we have a stiff conviction here that the good news of the gospel makes very little sense if we don't take the time, as Paul did in this short explanation, to say what the bad news is, right? He said Christ died for what? Our sins, okay? So what, what is the deal there? Well, Romans 6 makes it plain, starting in verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Okay? And so for, for us, if you've been a part of this gospel-centered church for any amount of time, you might be like, yes, bro, we know, okay? It's the bad news and the good news. But if we're gonna, if we're gonna come and touch this, we just have to make sure we're, we're, we're saying it again, and we're gonna keep saying it again until either the Lord comes and gets us all or, or grants each of us passage into our eternal country, okay? I'm going to keep, I I am not for the rest of my life going to divorce the good news of the gospel from the bad news that we need the good news. Because the good news doesn't make any sense, right? We're not preaching the gospel if we're just running around out here saying God loves you. God does love you. That's a beautiful truth. And and you can start there, but, but you have to make sure you end up at, do you realize how amazing it is that God loves you? Because if all you do is run around and say that God loves you, That leaves room for people to think things like, well, of course he does. (laughs) Why wouldn't he? I'm pretty awesome. And that's problematic because if that's where you're at, then you, you haven't even grabbed a hold of the beauty of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, your need for the gospel. The Bible is clear that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is perfect. And that has resulted in a break in relationship with the perfect holy God that made us. And the, way, the only way that's fixed is not to realize there's a problem and then from that point forward work very, very hard to do more good things and do less bad things. No, no there is nothing that's going to, to even begin to address that problem than the path and the door that God Himself established. It's by grace, His mercy, through faith in Christ. The gospel is the center of the Christian message. And so it's going to be the hub if this, if this church is a wheel, that's the hub we're spinning around. And everything else we do is going to stay anchored to that. Okay? I hope you're happy about that. That's a really good guiding principle. That should be a core value. Uh, if, you're, if you're supposedly doing something that has something to do with these scriptures. Okay? If not, then you've missed the point. Uh, and that would be tragic. Okay. So we're gospel-centered in everything. All right? The next core value and you know this i've already said it there's a whole sermon series go go get it later i'm going to try to not keep saying this you guys know there's a lot more i'd like to say about being gospel centered and everything but we just got to keep we got to keep pushing here okay so the next core value i like i almost feel like i'm doing something wrong moving on like that's what, that's what you're observing here as i'm like fidgety and like trying to you know explain myself it's like cuz some of you're like hold on man there's more about that i know oh, i know there's more i'm so aware so aware. Okay, but we're just we're going to do all the core values today. Praise God. <clears throat> and if, if hopefully what it does is, is, is stirs in you a desire to, to go continue diving into these things because they're all so crucial uh, to our identity as a church and our, our, our individual faithfulness in following Jesus, okay? So the second thing, we, we have a, a core value here at Love City Church. We believe God has called us to redefine love biblically. And this core value is one that is probably... Uh, not as run of the mill. Um, it may not be something you would run into uh, at, at every Christian church you, you may go to. Um, <clears throat> so let me let me explain what we mean by that. To redefine love biblically. All right. Uh, the love's a big deal, and it's important that we understand what God means when He says love. So we're talking about that. That's that's what I mean. Uh, first, I want to give everyone a chance to to be honest before the Lord. If I say, if I ask you the question, what is love, how many of you, the first intrusive thought that pops into your head is, baby, don't hurt me. I want you to raise your hand and tell the truth before the Lord. I think there should be more hands in the air, probably, but thank you for your honesty, those of you. That... <laughs> yeah. I start talking, I say, what is love, and you start seeing heads go, doing this thing. Um... We're gonna have a special special time of prayer at the end of the service for all of you that, that that's true. Um, we need deliverance from that. <laughs> uh, but what is love is a big it's a big question. Uh, it's one that has you know plagued the minds of philosophers and, and scientists and poets, great thinkers throughout time. Uh, if if you were gonna to try to get your finger on the pulse of the discussion of of what love really is today, if you were trying to understand like. Broadly, where is our culture at with this question? Anybody have a suggestion? Where would you go to try to figure that out? Go ahead. All right. Well, I went to chat GPT. That was a good answer, but I'm trying to figure out what the culture broadly is thinking about love. I went to chat GPT. Uh, so here's what chat GPT said. Love is a complex, multifaceted emotion that is often described as a profound feeling of affection, care, and connection towards someone or something. It can manifest in various forms, including romantic love, familial love, platonic love, and even love for activities, hobbies, or places. So here's what I appreciate about ChatGPT's answer, and remember, that's a large language mod- model pulling from like the collective wisdom of the entire internet. I, I-, I appreciate that the idea that there's <clears throat> these kind of different forms of affection came through, that's something that normally we would talk about in trying to determine uh, a good answer to this question, uh, but where, where it went sideways is, is reducing it down to saying love is a complex and multifaceted emotion, and I understand how that ends up kind of being the backstop of the idea, And and the other thing, it was really interesting, too, because Natalie has a ChatGPT account, and so do I, so I I typed it into both, and I don't really have a great answer for how this works. Maybe someone understands it better than me, but it kind of came up with two different answers, similar but different. And so there was some nuance and and back and forth, but when we're talking about love in the context of the Scriptures and, and what God means when He says love... We're not talking about various forms of affection. We're not talking just about strong or even the strongest of emotional feelings. What we're talking about is, is this reality. In 1 John chapter 4, it says twice that God is love. Okay? So at the at the if we're coming up with it with a definition, if we want to understand what does what is what is love from a biblical perspective, We're starting higher than something that's generated from us, okay? If love is just an emotion, then that's something coming from us. Love, simplest definition, and then we'll build, is a divine attribute, okay? Love is a part of who God is. It's a divine attribute. And the only reason we have any conception of this idea of love that God's talking about is because of him. And because of the gospel, right? So when 1 John 3, 16 says, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for one another, it's starting to help zero us in. And then, you know, John continues that idea. You end up in 1 John 4, which we spent a ton of time in last week. It would be totally appropriate to go back there right now, but again, for the sake of time, we're not going to. So 1 John 4, 7 through 21, I think you guys even read that in community group this week. That was on purpose so that you would be familiar with those scriptures, okay? So the whole idea that God is love takes this question up the ladder very much higher than just feelings of affection or even really strong emotional connection, okay? It's, <clears throat> it's, it's a divine attribute. And so part of what I think Ch- ChatGPT was touching in, in its answer, and why did I go there? Again, that's kind of an aggregate of all that the internet has, right now, it's sampling is from a few years ago, but it's still it's still a good. If I want to try to, I can't. I don't have the resources to um, do a poll nationwide and ask the question, "What is love?" I also probably wouldn't spend the money on that because I think 50% of people would answer, "Baby, don't hurt me," if I did that poll. So, <laughs> so this is is a good way to get some idea of what the, the big thoughts are out there on this issue okay so one of the things that that becomes a little bit complicated is the fact that we in the English language oftentimes uh, we tend to junk drawer words a little bit we, we 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 use them in a hyperbolic way or we also sometimes we, we, we're just willing we it's almost like a race to the bottom in terms of uh, overstating things sometimes, like, uh, and, and so words end up losing meaning when you do that, but <clears throat> the Greeks, and that's the language that the New Testament was written in primarily, they had different words for different types of affection, okay? They had words like eros, which kind of keys you in towards like r- the romantic type of love and all that that entails. They had phileo, which is like a brotherly love, so they're, they're acknowledging that there are these different types of affection, Whereas we would probably just use the word love for all of those, right? Or there's another one called storge, and that's like long-term kind of committed love versus the, the more kind of passionate emphasis of eros, right? So they, they had these different words. We don't really have that very much. We just say, I love you, or I love this, or I love that. And, and because of that, it it'll, it, it can... It can make the the definition of what we're talking about if we're trying to key in on what God means when he says love, when he says that he loves us. And the best example of that is the cross. And he calls us to, out of that love, to go love others. What does he mean? What is he talking about? Okay, well, it's very interesting that you have the word in the New Testament uh, that is most commonly translated love when it's talking about the love of God is agape. Many of you already know this. This is well-traveled terrain, but it's, it's good to be reminded of. In ancient literature, you don't see the word agape almost anywhere. It pops up in a couple little spots when it comes to ancient literature and poetry, but then it, there's like an explosion of that word in the New Testament. It's very common. And part of what that seems to communicate is the apostles knew... We need, like, when we're talking about the love of God, it's not eros, it's not phileo, it's not storge. We're talking about something different here, something deeper. We're talking about something that flows out of the very essence and character of God, okay? That's, that's important to understand. And so, when we talk about defining love biblically, I think one of the biggest, <clears throat> there's so many things we could talk about. One of the biggest misunderstandings kind of kind of getting off of the path of understanding this that maybe our culture has taken around the word love is uh, thinking that that tolerance is like the highest form of love or the best virtue out there. And when we talk about the love of God and what it looks like, I think John 8 is super helpful. In John 8, you have a woman caught in adultery and Uh, As much of of what was going on in this time frame was the religious leaders trying to trap Jesus, so they they saw this as another opportunity. Let's drag this woman out in front of Jesus. Let's see what he says about it. Because if he says, because the law, so they drag her out and say, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And here's where they're trying to trap him. Either he says, no, don't stone her. And so he has disregard now for the law of Moses. They're going to try to say, gotcha. Or if he says, no, stone her, that's what the law of Moses says then they're going to run to the Romans because they're not supposed to be doing their own executions because they're under Roman rule. So they think what they've done is set Jesus up to lose either way. And as Jesus often does, he doesn't say, yeah, go ahead and stone her or don't stone her. He says, you that have no sin, he that is without sin, you cast the first stone. It's so interesting. It says one by one, they drop their stones, starting with the older ones. Not a surprise to me. Eventually, everyone's gone. And he says, what happened? Did no one, did no one uh, decide you should die? And she says, no. And, he, and here's, here's the key. At, everybody that thinks tolerance is the highest form of love is really into this story so far. See, that's what I mean. See, all these judgmental Christians, see. But they forget about the last part. Because that what, the last thing Jesus said was, then I'm not going to judge you either. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus didn't just save her from the stoning. He also sent her off with a command to go and sin no more. And this is not that hard to understand if you've ever been around a child or had any affection for a child at all. If you love a kid, you're not going to look out the front door and see the kid out playing in the middle of the street and say, oh, the best way I can love them is to just let them do whatever they've decided is fun in their precious little head right is that what love looks like in that moment i don't i don't want to infringe on their autonomy i don't want to judge them i mean who knows maybe playing in the street is the right thing to do no you would go out and because you love the child you're not going to let them play in the street okay and so letting our definition of love be shaped by what god has shown us in his word as opposed to kind of the loudest voices of the culture at any given time is really important okay Uh, and it's it's really really easy to get confused about now I want to address this very quickly this is probably being gospel centered and redefining love are going to be the hardest ones for me to set down (laughs) to move on Uh, it's so hard but I want to say one other thing because I know there may be some of you and some of this depending on what kind of um, maybe theological streams you've been exposed to you might think man this guy talks about love a lot but what about the holiness of God like hold on, man, Isn't, shouldn't we be talking more about that? And, and sometimes there becomes this situation where there's almost as if the holiness of God is pitted against the love of God, and like, which one's more important? And I'd just like to mention th- this reality. Uh, and, and someone thinking that might be thinking about Hebrews 12, right, that says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And, and I don't disagree with that. Holiness is very important. Uh, holiness is, <clears throat> Hebrews 12 says what it says. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But that also has to be interpreted through the grid of the gospel and understood not to mean um, that I'm, I'm maybe saved by grace, but then it's, it's, me, it's me walking out holiness that's going to keep me that way. That I, I'm initially saved by grace, but then it's on me, and it's going to be by my power or, or my self-determination. <clears throat> Let me say this on that issue. Without love... You will not have holiness. You can have self-righteousness without love, but you can't have holiness. The holiness of God is about responding. What what motivates our obedience? What motivates us looking at the holiness of God and then wanting to walk in that? It's supposed to be the love of God. And and, and it's a foolish thing, in, in my personal opinion, to take any attribute of God and try to pit it against the other and, f- and find a superior attribute of God. Because here's the thing, we believe God is infinite. We believe God is, if he's infinite, and he's infinite in all that he is, and he's infinite in love, and he's infinite in holiness, and there is no hierarchy of these attributes. God is fully and totally love. God is fully and totally holy. God is fully and totally good. He is fully and totally powerful. All of that being to a measure that can't be measured. And so these things are not one against the other. Uh, it's, they all work together. And some of the hard work for us is taking the time to think about how that works. How does the holiness of God and the love of God actually come together and, and help us to understand Him better and then what it looks like for us to serve Him, okay? So that's redefining love biblically. That's a big part of <clears throat> what we're seeking to do As a church, because love is a big deal. Um, The next is, we believe, the next core value is, we believe there's strength in diversity. Strength in diversity. I'm gonna read you a set of scriptures that uh, would point us to the heart of God on this matter and the idea that I I think God believes this. That's why we care about it, okay? So I'm in Revelation chapter seven. I'm gonna start in verse nine. Let me read this to you. This is a picture, uh, a vision the Apostle John had basically, of the heavenlies. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all the tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. The key here being, there was a great multitude, which no one could count. That's good news. I'm glad that this heavenly vision has a multitude so large no one could count of people in the throne room of God singing of of his great worth and and worshiping him. That's good news. I hope you care about that. I hope you're excited about that idea. But here's a key. We, We find something, some details about this multitude. We have people from every nation, all the tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne. And this also shows something of the heart of God on this issue of, of diversity, okay? And so the, the way we kind of frame this idea or talk about it is that we believe there's strength in diversity. And that, <laughs> that can be a hard idea to grab because I'm not sure how many of you are aware of this human tendency, but the, the natural tendency for most people, say that so I'm safe I think, the natural tendency for most people is to be very comfortable around people who they perceive to be like them. Okay, And most people, again, most, feel uncomfortable around people they perceive to be not like them. And there's all different kinds of ways that people decide whether someone is like them or not like them. And part of what the gospel does is it opens us up to the potential of being able to value people f- not just in spite of their differences but even for their differences okay we, we can see that uh, and we're going to get down to a core value of humility here in a minute and I'm hoping I'll have time to kind of weave, weave a lace through all of these and, and so that we can see how they build upon another and, and buttress one another but uh, the idea of, of valuing diversity uh, is is something that it is so apparent even in kind of the unfolding of the redemptive narrative, right? Because God did pick a people in Israel for a specific function of, out of which would come a Savior. His name is Jesus. But we can we can see the human tendency to not be open to this idea in the way that most of Israel was perceiving what Messiah would do and, and what God's big plan was, right? They they weren't thinking about the Gentiles being brought in. They weren't thinking about the fact that God's plan of salvation was for the whole world. They were waiting for Jesus to do what they thought Messiah stuff was. Let's conquer the Romans. Let's, make, let's, let's see Israel be the, the light to all the nations because it's this powerful nation state with God as its leader and, and, and this Messiah king that he sends. Like That was kind of the edges of their vision for what God could be doing. But, but Jesus came and, and just blew the top off of that. Didn't do any of the stuff that they were expecting him to do. And then sent his disciples into all the nations before he ascended to go and to spread this good news of the gospel that there is a God who made you and loves you and has a plan to solve the sin problem. To set us free from death and slavery. <clears throat> and so, when we, when we look at there being strength in diversity here we as i said Pete, there's different ways people kind of meet someone and make an assessment is this person like me okay and, and that varies but I, these these three things kind of cover most of the major categories all right we believe we will be stronger as a church and are stronger as a church if we have diversity in three areas okay so that's ethnic diversity that's generational diversity and that's socioeconomic diversity. And you can kind of reverse engineer these uh, and go backwards at it to see the importance of them. When you look, if you just think for a minute about how the enemy tries to keep people divided and hating one another instead of loving one another. Uh, if you look at the ways and, and like the wedges that you can see the forces of darkness trying to drive between people, you can see. That The the forces of darkness want people of different ethnicities to be suspicious of one another and hate one another. People of different generations to hate one another and be suspicious of one another. People of different socioeconomic statuses to be suspicious of one another and hate each each other. I don't know, maybe some of you have checked out of the news cycle at this point, and if you have, like, (laughs) I'm not here to try to tell you to check back in, but man, if you just pay attention to what the kind of big narratives are, there is so much division and strife that is constantly sown in, in, these, uh, in these areas, okay? So <clears throat> what, what I believe the Bible would lead us to is, is a humble, love-motivated acknowledgement that I'm individually, we are going to be better if we push ourselves beyond the natural instinct to just cluster with people that we think are like us that I'm going to be challenged in ways that are healthy. If I'm willing to be around people, and not just willing to be around, but even might be willing to seek out people, that if I, if I wasn't being intentional about this, I would just, the, the, the kind of natural wiring that we have is to look around and find people that aren't going to really challenge me a whole lot because they're basically just like me, and so if I hang out with them, I'm in an echo chamber, and it's, it's not I'm not going to be pushed real hard. Uh, but to to seek out people of, of different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different experiences, for, to, to have genuine friendships with people in, in these different categories, generationally, uh, ethnically, socioeconomically, right? So most of the time, uh, think, think about how suspicious generations tend to be of each other. I mean, how often do you hear the trope, Um, young people basically think old people are just like out of touch and don't get it and look at them struggling with their technology and like, uh, you know what I mean? That's kind of that. And then, and then you got people in the older generations, like, look at these buffoons with all their, with their music, if you could call it that, right? Uh, (laughs) And and, and they're lazy and they're, they're into this stupid, look at them, looking at their screens and stupid, this and that. I mean, can I just can we just be honest and not seem like we're being hyper spiritual to say that is the work of the devil man? The devil is about division. The devil is about taking people that would be a genuine blessing to one another and trying to keep them apart. The Bible also specifically addresses these things. It's not like I'm reaching for these concepts. The Bible says that the older generation should invest in and love the younger generations. And the younger generations should respect and give honor to the older generations. This is, this is, this is biblical, all right? And the whole idea around the socioeconomic status, listen, I, I get, I get it's, it's the same type of deal. Think, think about the narratives that are out there, right? Poor people, people of less means, there are many of them that have decided if, if you're rich, you're, you're wicked. The only way you could have got there is if you stepped on people's heads to get there. Literally the only way they could imagine it could be possible. Not that maybe God has entrusted this person with business skills and they're a good steward and, and they like use the, the skills God gave them to further the kingdom. Can't imagine that as a possibility, right? But on the other end, you've got people of higher socioeconomic status, oftentimes assuming if you're poor, you're dumb or lazy. The only thing they could possibly conceive of is the reason. The Bible is not so narrow, thank God. Go through your Bible, you're going to find examples of righteous poor people and righteous rich people. You're also going to find examples of wicked poor people and wicked rich people. Righteousness is not tied to socioeconomic status at all. Okay, and so ethnic diversity, generational diversity, socioeconomic diversity. As a church, I realize how... Guys, if you... <laughs> if you read some of the stuff I read, and maybe you do, I don't know, there's all this like common wisdom out there about church planting, and how you grow a church, and this and that, and, and half of it is like so infuriating to me that I, I honestly could just throw something. But um, it's like... <laughs> I understand that that having this as a core value and pushing everybody on this automatically makes you uncomfortable. I, I totally understand that. I just want you to know that. I hope you're not sitting there going, "Man, does he know? Does he know he's like almost sabotaging the potential for growth? Because if you're going to insist on this and us caring about this, like you're getting in the way of of kind of how naturally people group up and and are, are like it, right? But my biggest concern is not that we get a big group and everybody just likes it. The biggest concern here is that you are faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's going to mean that a large part of what I do for as long as you decide to be around here and let me mess with you is to make you uncomfortable. I love you, and that's why I'll make you uncomfortable. Do you, do you see that? Maybe you don't right now. Maybe, maybe that, that you don't quite understand what I'm saying. And if that's where you're at, I I promise I'd be so happy to have a conversation and try to unpack that more for you. Because we are called to follow Jesus. We are called to walk in self-sacrificial love as followers of Jesus. And that is going to cost. And that is going to be uncomfortable often. Jesus didn't say, hey, figure out the most comfortable way to follow me. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. Inherent in that is like, hey, this is going to cost and it's going to be uncomfortable, but it's also going to be the best possible existence you can have as a human. Because underneath all of these core values, underneath all of these things that we're trying to constantly cultivate in our hearts and minds individually and as a church, The underlying truth is this, we genuinely believe, maybe you don't believe this yet, but I I genuinely hope you can at some point, that obedience to God and walking the way of Jesus is the most joy-filled existence you'll ever possibly find. With all of its discomfort and inconvenience, it it is where real joy is found, because it's what you were made for, okay? Instead of of people of of various ethnicities being suspicious of one another, instead of people of various generations being suspicious of one another, and people of different socioeconomic statuses being suspicious of one another, the the, the heavenly vision, the biblical vision, is for all of us to be humble enough to really actually believe this. And I'm going to throw this at you, and I want you to judge yourself. man. Do I actually believe that? The challenge of the scriptures would be for me to be humble enough to believe that I can learn something from anybody, that I can be, God can use anybody to to help shape and form me more into the image of Christ. And to the degree you think about this more, you're going to realize, man, people, there's some real deal reality to the idea that people that are different than me are a great tool in the hands of God for shaping me and helping me to see what it means to follow someone as radical as Jesus. Amen. Okay. That leads us to and again some of you probably kind of already see how these are chained together. The next core value is unity, all right? And and as I told you, our vision, our mission, our core values, it's it's all we're always going to if there's not a easy to trace line between anything I'm telling you that are are, are like these core principles for us. If there's not a, if it's not easy to trace the line from what we're talking about to Jesus, then it shouldn't be in here. Okay. So when we're talking about unity, I instantly always go to John 17. That's the high priestly prayer. Okay. This is the longest prayer we have recorded from Jesus. One of the last prayers we have recorded from Jesus in the chronological timeline up to his crucifixion. Okay. Unity was on the the unity of God's people was on the mind of the Master as he was headed to the crucifixion. Try to think about this. (laughs) What would be on your mind knowing you're within hours of the crucifixion? If you're Jesus, okay? There's a lot of things you could be thinking about. A lot of things could rise to the top of things to be praying about. One of the things that rose to the top for Jesus was praying for unity among his people. Let me read this to you from John 17. I'm starting in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Do you hear that? Do you hear the motivation of your master? Will you take some, some solace in that today? I'm not just up here trying to trick you like we really care about your joy. No, no, listen to the prayer of your master. So that they may have my joy made full in themselves. This is why God the Son is praying to God the Father hours before the crucifixion, something like this. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them away from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I also send Them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself so that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. He's talking about the disciples. Here's how to know for sure I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, talking about the disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Right? Jesus dies, rises, gives the great commission, sends the the apostles out to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. And so when Jesus is praying right now, and he says, <clears throat> I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word, do you understand what that means? On, on down through the generation, the apostles went out and preached the gospel, and other people got it, and then they went and preached the gospel, and it made its way down to our ears and our hearts. Jesus is praying for you and I right now. In this, in this prayer, what is he, what's he thinking about? What, what, is, what is he praying for us? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is what's on the mind of the Master. That we would be one. And that that would speak a message to the world about the fact that we belong to Jesus. He continues, the glory which you have given me, I also have given to them so that they may be one just as we are one. Or, okay. So here's, here's a little, here's a little tidbit. Um, maybe you're of the mind of like, I think we're doing pretty good on unity. Like I'm pretty good. I don't know that we really need to talk about it a whole lot more. I'm not sure there's much more work for us to do there. I think we're doing pretty good. Here's the standard that was just set. Here's the bar that was just raised. That they may be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Okay, so now how are we doing on unity? Room to grow. And God does that with so many things, right? Just simply, just, just like walk in love to the degree you understand how big that is, how deep that goes, like you you just realize, oh, oh, that's going to be a rest of my life thing. That's going to be something I'm going to be continually growing in until my last moments on this temporal plane of existence, right? And, And that puts us in a really healthy place of realizing day in, day out, minute by minute, we're in desperate need of the help of the Holy Spirit. That that promise Jesus gave us, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, is so precious. It's so, it matters so much. Because he's, he's, he's calling us into, he's drawing us into a mission, man, and a vision and a purpose that is so far beyond anything we could possibly hope to do without him. And I'm so thankful. You know, I've thought before, why, why would, Why would God make his primary mode of getting the good news of the gospel to the world? Why would he put us with all of our absolute frailty in the mix at all, right? Why doesn't God just do what he did with Paul for everybody, wouldn't, that, wouldn't it seem to you, well, maybe you're not so bold or ignorant as I am, so I'll just say, I'm not going to put you in the boat with me. Here's, here's where I'm at. Sometimes I, the thought crosses my mind, like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be more effective to do it that way than to have goofball me in the mix, trying to share the gospel with people? Like if the Lord just showed up and Damascus wrote to everybody, guess what? Ha <laughs> ha! You serve me now, right? Like, that, would, that seems, like, seems like more efficient, right? So what is the deal? And I don't know that we get a plain answer from Scripture on all of God's motives, but, but I think it's back to his love for us. I think there's, there's something to how full our joy is going to be in eternity that we got to participate in God's plan of redemption. So clearly, like, I guess I can at least I can say this much from Scripture very solidly. God could have done redemption a different way other than including us in the mix. But something motivated him to do it this way. And that makes me feel like even more of a heel for every single time I've disregarded the fact that he has let me into this great mission. You can do with that what you'd like. Uh, But the the fact that, that unity was on the mind of the master at this stage of the, the redemption narrative and, and the way he prays about it. It, it. That, I don't remember how old I was when this thought first hit me, but when I realized that when he says, I don't pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. When I realized that Jesus was, was praying really for me in that moment, because I'm one that has come to believe in him through their word over the generations, the idea hit me like I, I actually have the opportunity to be a part of answering a prayer of Jesus. And that really makes me want to care about unity. <laughs> that really makes me think this is something that should be on my mind often. That I, I should be a defender of unity. And this sounds like a counterintuitive idea, but sometimes you have to fight for unity because the forces of darkness do not like it. There's something to the way God designed humans. I don't totally get it. But there, there is a power in our unity almost whichever direction we put it. And, and I'll just give you this quickly. This is not in the notes. I'm getting dangerous because I'm not supposed to be here. But if you go to the beginning of Genesis, the Tower of Babel, okay? Remember? Every, everyone kind of, they, they come off the ark and there's, there's a bunch of people and they, they settle in this plane and they're like, you know what? Let's do this. Let's build a tower to heaven, like to our own glory. And this is problematic. This is not what God said to do. And God says this, this phrase. He's like, if, if we don't go down there and confuse their language, whatever they put their minds to, they're going to do it. So have you, can you think of an example throughout human history or in the last year uh, where humans getting together with a bad idea can really make something happen? It works both ways, okay? And, and so that's why it's important that we're not just unified, but unified around the truth of the Scriptures, unified around the Gospel. Because if a bunch of us get together and we push in a direction, you can move stuff. I just wish we believed that more about pushing the gospel forward into the world. And uh, I think we, we honor Christ as we seek to defend uh, unity and fight for it. So that's why this is in here. Uh, the next one is humility, and there's just one more after that. So we're, we're going to make it, okay? Uh, humility. Why is that a core value for us? Jesus cares a lot about it. Let me read you a short parable from Jesus in Luke 14, starting in verse 7. Now he began telling a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, whenever you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And the one who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. Then in disgrace, you will have to proceed to occupy the last place. But whenever you are invited, go and take the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are dining at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, a great example of the inside-out, upside-down nature of God's kingdom. Humility is not something often prized and valued in our culture, okay? Most of the time, it's the bold, you know, fortune favors the bold. You ever heard that before? And I'm not saying you can't be humble and bold. I'm just trying to get at that, the idea of what characteristics people look for and, and, and say, that's, that's somebody that, that I admire, right? Humility is not normally on that list, but... Uh, and just in case the parable doesn't make a lot of sense to you in ancient times the, the seating chart meant had much meaning you know most of you when you invite people to your house you probably don't have like names on the places and and when everyone sits down you can see like who the favorite is based on where they sat right that's not how most of you do it if you are doing that i would say in our cultural context go ahead and stop it's probably not a good practice okay that's you're going to offend your guests all right just you know Seating charts are fine, but don't let the seating chart reflect how much you care about people, all right? That's kind of jacked up. But in any case, um, just, I guess, because of where we're at in history, but uh, the point is, for them, that was very true. And that's why he's saying, take the last place, right? Just assume, <laughs> and, 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 you know, this, this gets deeper because, man, what does it look like in your heart, even? Are you going to the last place, just really fully expecting, surely... Somebody's gonna should be pulling me up farther, or do you, do you have a really uh, humble view of yourself? And humility is tricky because sometimes uh, self deprecation is mistaken for humility. That's not what it is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. It, it's tied into that selflessness that characterizes the love of God shown to us most vibrantly in the cross of Christ okay? Um, and, and I don't have time to, right now, build a, a good enough case for humility, but I just want to give you a couple more things to at least establish why it belongs on this list of core values, okay? So let me just read a couple more scripture references, and we'll move on to the next. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, you younger men, likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Toward one another, not just toward God, toward one another. Why? Why do that? Because God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Seeking to walk in humility is tied to understanding the gospel, right? Because here's the deal I, (laughs) man, pride's dangerous. And this truth, James also said this, I quoted Peter here, but James also said this, and they're both quoting the Old Testament that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How much right now genuinely in your heart do you, can you say with conviction, I need God's grace? That's a great question to run yourself through. Do I really believe that? Why do I believe that? To what degree do I believe that? Because a motivation for humility is understanding God gives grace to the humble. But he opposes the proud. And I don't know about you, but I got enough going on like, with God helping me, this is hard enough. But if I, if I get in a position where because of pride I'm going to have God opposing me, I'm in serious trouble. I got no shot. Okay? That's <clears throat> a great thing, idea to keep a hold of, okay? Uh, verse 6, same, same passage. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time having cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares about you. It's really helpful. It's really helpful. Um, there's even a humility in being able to cast our anxiety to God. There, there's a humble acknowledgement like, Lord, uh, I can sit here and hold this ball of anxiety and, and, and imagine that me, me holding it is, is doing something about it. Or, or in humility, I can take that, trusting that He cares for me and I can give it to him. Knowing that if it's in his hands, it's, in, it's, it's got a far better caretaker than, than it was in my hands. It's in the hands now of someone that can really do something about it. Okay. Particularly all the things that we are anxious about that are outside of our control. Which are often oftentimes a great many things, unfortunately. Okay, Last core value. I think we did it. You guys have done awesome. Uh, gratitude. Gratitude is the last core value. Okay? Guiding principle for us here. Let me read this passage of Scripture to you. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is from 1 Thessalonians, okay? Here's, <clears throat> I've, I've now been attempting, by God's grace, to shepherd people and walk with them now for a long time. And one of the things I run into most often is a sense of paralysis that comes over people because they, <clears throat> they, they feel uh, unsure about God's will and, and then f- so they feel stuck and they don't know what to do and there's a, there's a fear that comes with that. And I, ju- I just want to submit to every person that has felt that or could feel that in the future this idea, okay? You are never without instruction about the will of God for your life I know (laughs) I'm like you in this I, I know sometimes we don't have details about exact choices that we wish we had right but we have to remember that God leads people in different ways at different times for their good okay Sometimes God will do things like we saw in the book of Acts where Paul had an intention to go to a place. I'm heading here. The Holy Spirit says, no, don't go there. Go there. Now, I don't know about all of you. If I got to pick how the Lord was going to lead me all the time, I would pick that one. Like, Lord, I would like very direct, just tell me exactly what you want me to do. I'm here for it. Let's run it. Okay. That would be great. But he doesn't always do that. Sometimes he does stuff like he did with Abraham. Abraham, gather up your stuff, start walking, more info to come. <laughs> that's not a quote, but that's basically the sense of how God led Abraham. Okay. I assume some of you at least are like me. That's not my favorite way to be led by God. I feel like I'm smart enough to handle the details, Lord. I mean, really? All you're going to give me is move that way? general direction okay but then i bounce back up to the last (laughs) core value which is humility and go oh yeah i'm not god forgot that momentarily and realize that whichever way he's leading it's because he sees things and knows things that i don't know and I can, in, in the absence of details, I cling with all of my might to the promise that he is working all things for the good of those that love him. He sees what I don't see. He loves me even more than I love my silly old self. And he's going he's gonna to take care of me. And, and sometimes it's about obedience to those first simple things, it's walking in that direction that puts us in the place to be able to handle the next instruction. But if I'm like, nope, without all the details, Lord, I'm not moving, then there, there may, we may just be stuck. That's where you'd really be stuck. And so what, part of what I'm saying is there is always a path before you. Part of why we have these core values is, is to give you a compass when, when you are moving through parts of your life where you maybe don't have the details, but you, you never just have to sit down and, 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 and feel defeated, like, I, now I don't know what to do. Because if you think about it, it's, it was a fairly um, <clears throat> foolhardy thing for me to try to preach six core values in one sermon, but there's a reason why I'm doing it. It's because of this idea. If at any point in your life you feel stuck, I don't know what to do next, I don't know God's will. Well, friend, yes you do. If you just went and started to look at these six core values, don't don't most of you feel like you've got enough to do there, focus on there, think about there, try to obey there to keep you busy for a minute? (laughs) I don't know, the rest of your life probably. You are never without instruction from the Lord and in the lack of details. When you're in that season where you don't, You've got specific things you don't have the details to, friends. That's where you, you focus on those, the general things he has given us. That's why I read you this passage from Thessalonians, and that's what, it, it kind of wraps this whole idea of how, how these core values are meant to guide us as a church, but also can be helpful for you in your life individually. In everything, give thanks. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. I don't know God's will for my life are you sure? Because he's made some things really plain about what his will is for your life. And when you don't have the specifics, focus on the basics and the specifics will come. If you've never been in a spot like I'm describing, you may be not understanding why it feels like I'm beating this drum so hard. But for those of you that have been in that spot, I know you get it. You understand how helpful that principle is to not feel paralyzed, and not feel like God's abandoned you because you don't have specific instruction at a certain time. He hasn't. That's not what's going on. He can't. He's promised he won't, so he can't. When God binds himself by his word, it's done. He'll never be undone. He's not a man that he should lie. He's a good father. We can trust that. I was going to take time to try to... Kind of weave all these together more and show you how they build upon one another. But um, I'm going <clears> to <throat> leave you uh, with with homework to think about that. And ask God to show you um, out of mercy to those that are loving the kids this morning and your tummies and lunchtime. So will you pray with me, Father? We come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you uh, so much for your word and for the reality that um, you you have really. You've distilled things down for us. Um, as, as we first begin to <clears throat> open up the scriptures and, and, and try to understand what it is you're saying to us in them, it can be dizzying, it can be confusing, it can be overwhelming. There seems to be so many different things going on, and, and there are, but also the more we, the more we uh, read, the more we study, the more we are familiarized with the content of what you've given us in your word it becomes clear that there are these things that, that rise to the top, and they're repeated over and over again, and they're given emphasis. Um, Lord, I thank you for verses like when Peter told us, above all else, keep fervent in our love one for the other. Thank you, Lord, that you, when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment, he was not afraid to say to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. I thank you, Lord, that you You have pointed us to these guideposts, these pillars that can can keep us uh, on a path towards that that end goal of being conformed into Your image and being more and more like You. Lord, please, grow in us a desire, a growing desire every day that we would think like You and we would speak like You and we would act like You. Lord, You... (laughs) have given us such an incredible example of what love is. You're the only God among all of the the gods that are proposed to be out there. You're the only God who humbled himself. You're not asking us to do anything that you haven't done. And so our hope lies in you alone. Help us keep track of that as as life comes at us fast, as issues come at us fast, because they are, Our hope has always been in you. It always will be. And let us live in in light of that beautiful truth. For your glory, Master, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org